Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to be looking at Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23, talk about uh, the issue of recognizing false followers. Thank you, Lord, for our time together today. We just pray that you maximize uh, this afternoon for your glory. Our hearts, our minds are yours, our commitment to you. And we thank you for all the blessings we have and will receive by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 7 is a passage that is uh, used and misused, mostly misused in my opinion by many people uh, against what we would our, be our position in the free grace movement. And um, we all recognize that there's a problem of worldliness in the church. I think even those that disagree with us who write uh, things against us, like uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, um, are concerned that there's a, a spirit of worldliness in the church. Uh, Christians aren't living up to what they say they are. We know that's true. We know it's true across the board of whether you're free grace, Calvinist, Arminian, or whatever. Um, But one passage that is used quite frequently is this passage, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 23. And I think you you would recognize that many who call themselves Christians in our country and around the world today uh, very well may not be. There's a lot of extremes uh, in the world. Many people have an emotional experience, and therefore believe that they were saved. You've heard the testimony of someone going to a a church retreat or camp and having some kind of a liver quiver and emotional speaker and coming home thinking that they're saved. Um, They're not living like it now, so you wonder about them. I'm not saying they're not. I'm not saying they are, but you wonder about them. Uh, There's a lot of sensationalism uh, going on uh, in the church. Turn on the Christian channel sometime and watch the show. Um, intellectualism, on the other hand, some people are, uh, believe the right facts, and, uh, and therefore they have the right doctrine. Uh, but does that mean that they're saved? There are many people who are trusting in their good works to save, as you surely have encountered. Um, George Barna did a survey, and uh, it was some years ago, but I, I bet the numbers are, if anything, worse today. But he did a survey, and he found that 48% of those who claim to be born again are trusting in their works to get to heaven. The actual question was, uh, or the statement was, that they agreed with is, if people are generally good and do and or do enough good things for others, they will earn a place in heaven. And 48% of those who say they're born again agreed with that statement. So you see, we live in a world where we wonder uh, who really is a Christian and who is not. And then, of course, there are those who are just trusting in a false gospel. And we're coming at it from different directions. Someone like Dr. Wayne Grudem might come at it from one direction. He would say that uh, no one is a Christian who professes uh, Christianity uh, just because of their profession. And, um, and we would uh, have some grounds to disagree with that. So we, we come to a Matthew like, uh, passage like Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. And I'll, I'll, I'll read it quickly, and uh, then we'll talk about it. 
Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. If you haven't figured it out already, then there's uh, some notes uh, outlined there for you in your booklet. How is this passage usually used? It is usually used to express a judgment on someone's salvation. And that's how we see it used in many books from the other side, the other camp, Lordship, Salvation Camp, the uh, Reformed Calvinist camp. In fact, there's one fellow, Alan Stanley. Perhaps you've heard the name. Uh, he's written a book. <clears throat> now, this is a man who went to Dallas Theological Seminary and got his Ph.D., was given a Ph.D. He did his dissertation on Jesus teaching salvation by works, or the necessity of works in salvation from the Gospels. And he, and he concludes that Jesus was teaching works are necessary. And now he has written a book called uh, Salvation is More Complicated Than You Think. And uh, he begins and ends and, and throughout the book refers to this passage. And his contention is, that works are necessary for salvation. That's what Jesus was teaching in the Gospels. Um, so it is an important passage, and uh, we, we need to know how to answer it. One thing that we notice when we look at the passage is this emphasis of the recurring idea or word about fruits. You will know them by their fruits, good fruit, bad fruit. <clears throat> he repeats the statement, you will know them by their fruits. So we want to talk about what is fruit, and we might... Ask the question, how much fruit is necessary? And is fruit a biblical proof of salvation? And does that mean that someone, you can tell someone is saved by their conduct? Because that's really the question that we're trying to answer. Is fruit the biblical proof of salvation? <clears throat> and let's talk a little bit, just a brief word about the context, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples along with the multitude assembled. And, of course, there's many different views of the Sermon on the Mount. My, to sum it up, my, my particular view is that Jesus is explaining the kingdom standard of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, both to his disciples and the multitude and to the Jewish nation. Uh, his disciples, I think, knew how to be saved and were saved at this time. Maybe not all of the multitude. But there's not a surprise to me that Jesus might explain the kingdom standards of righteousness to his disciples any more than Paul explains the gospel to the Romans in the Roman church or the the gospel to the Galatians and the Galatian church. Um, it, he was making statements that need to be said so that they could have a clearer understanding of the righteousness that the kingdom required. And then in the immediate context, we find Jesus discussing the broad gate, um, the broad way and the narrow gate. So this is, sam this is sandwiched between that discussion and the discussion uh, after this passage about building on sand or building on rock. I take the Broadway and the narrow gate as uh, salvific uh, issues that he's talking about. There are many who are on the Broadway of destruction, and there are few who find the way to life. I take that as eternal life. You can compare John 10, verse 9, or John 14, 6, where Jesus calls himself the way or the gate. And, uh, and I think the disciples would have known that. So the, the question is about the Broadway or the narrow gate. And what kind of righteousness, then, does a person need to be on that narrow path to life? 
Let's make some observations about the passage. Um, the first observation is very simple. This is a warning about false prophets. So right off the bat, we have a problem with the usual interpretation that Jesus is telling us how to recognize a false follower. Or I'm not using the word false professor on purpose. It gets people a little bit confused when we use the word professor. So I'm using the word follower. But he says, this is about false prophets. They will come to you like wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, false prophets, of course, are in the Bible from uh, the beginning to the end. Um, there have always been false prophets. There are false prophets yet to come. Um, a prophet, in my understanding, is somebody who's God appointed, who speaks new revelation directly from God. Somebody who speaks directly from God and leads people to follow God. I know there are many of you who probably take a different interpretation of a prophet today. It's kind of been, in my opinion, uh, reformed to include those who preach. I don't particularly agree with that. I think it's somebody who speaks directly from God. And um, there are examples of that in the Bible. So what would be a false prophet? A false prophet is somebody who's self-appointed, who does not speak for God, and who deceives people for nefarious reasons. Don't you like that word, nefarious? Uh, so a false prophet is usually somebody who's self-appointed. Now, I have met many prophets in my travels, in, especially in uh, the continent of Africa and in India. You find many people who like to call themselves prophets. And I say, oh, you are. So uh, who, who appointed you prophet? You know, and it's usually just the fact that they decided to take the title for themselves. Um, generally self-appointed, but they're, they have a motive, and it's usually to deceive people in some way. And there's usually some, uh, some gain from that, whether it's power, prestige. Finances often are involved in that because profits would deserve more from the people. So those, that's my understanding of what a false prophet is. Now, the passage is telling us, though, that these false prophets can, are wolves in sheep's clothing. So you have to kind of look closely at them. And when you look closely, you see that they really do look like sheep because they're in sheep's clothing. So false prophets can look and act like believers. Uh, Judas was one of the disciples. But for all practical purposes, uh, the public thought that he was one of Jesus' true disciples. They put forth a good appearance. Um, many, who would call, many who would call themselves prophets today or who we would know not to be Christians, uh, they, they can do good things. Uh, a ministry can still do good things and yet ask for your donations and deceive people on the other hand. In fact, I would say that, you know, when you turn on the channel and you look at these really uh, crackpots preaching, there's, there's nobody that doesn't have some kind of ministry that they claim overseas. Usually it's an orphanage, you know, raising, we've got to raise money for this orphanage. Um, and that justifies everything else they do, their mansion, their Rolls Royce, and everything else. Now, I'm not criticizing anybody that has a ministry for an orphanage uh, here, their legitimate ministry. What I'm saying is that, um, when you look at them and the appearance that they give, they are doing the right things. That's what it means that they, I think that when it says they look like sheep. Um, and the scriptures warn us that even Satan himself can transform himself into an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. So since false prophets can act like believers, how can works be the final proof of salvation? 
we have a problem there. You see it? First of all, it's not a test of salvation. It's a test of false prophets. Secondly, if they look and act like believers, how can works be the final test of salvation? Well, what's the problem there? Well, there's a number of problems. Let me, let me list some. First of all, good works are hard to define. You, you test me out on this. But you read a book like Dr. Wayne Grudem's book and many, many other books. I cannot find them defining a good work. Alan P. Stanley does take a shot at it in his book. Other than that, I find no discussion of good works, and yet that is what they're making the criteria of someone's salvation. So wouldn't we have to start with what is a good work? Now, I think a good work maybe would be something inspired by God or inspired by the Holy Spirit that a person does with the right motives. Okay, something like that. But we don't even find a definition of good works. It's just left out there that a person has to have good works. The good works can be relative. Um, relative in the sense that what might be a good work for somebody else might not be recognized or noticed or even considered a good work by another. Uh, people grow and change at different rates, and they do different things. A man is... A man is... Um, Addicted to pornography, he looks at it every day. He becomes a Christian. Six months later, he comes up to his pastor and he says, Pastor, I'm so proud of myself. I've only looked at pornography once this month. Now, how, what would you say? Is that sanctification? Is that growth? Is that good works? Unbelievers can have good works, right? We look at the Mormon church, we look at their beautiful commercials, and we see them all oriented around family and doing good things. And, and certainly do, they do a lot of good things. Hindus do a lot of good things. Muslims do a lot of good things. How can you judge someone's salvation by their good works? Good works can be hard to determine. In other words, in order to know if someone's doing good works or not, wouldn't you have to kind of watch them 24-7? When they wake up, do they thank God for their breath? Uh, when they go to bed at night, do they read a Bible verse? Do they say a prayer? How do we know what somebody is doing? How do we know what they're not doing that they could do or used to do? How can you judge somebody with standards that are so elusive and subjective? I was just in Omaha, and a good free grace pastor friend up there was giving me a good example. He reminded me of the time when I was preaching in my own church, and I used the word, in one sermon, I used the word gosh and darn. And I was approached afterward and rebuked for, uh, for um, using curse words. And I said, well, you're... You should know what the original words I would have used were. But uh, I like the line that uh, my friend Dan used when he said uh, he was a new Christian and he was preaching, and he used the word gee whiz. And someone came up to him afterward and said, I don't appreciate the fact that you cursed in your sermon. And he said, well, listen, to you it may have been sin, but to me it's progress. <laughs> it's relative, isn't it? Isn't it relative? How can we measure someone's salvation by their works? They're just hard to measure and, um, and quantify. How, who can answer the question, how many good works proves that you're saved? No one can answer the question. No one has ever given that, that golden standard. It's not in the scriptures, and that's why they can't give it. So we can recognize false prophets because what's on the inside eventually comes out. And that's why he says a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. I think the main point of that is what eventually is on the inside 
comes out, and we will know them by their fruit. Now, what comes out of a person besides works? Words. Let's talk about that. I'm sorry. It's just the elephant in the room and the donkey. But what do you see? What you see are two good-looking people. They're dressed sharp. They have done a lot of good things in life. They hang with a nice crowd, a cool crowd at least, respectable in society, have families, have foundations that help people. Don't get sarcastic now. So what do you see? How do you really know Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? Have you been listening to the news lately? It's those WikiLeaks and hidden microphones and recordings that reveal what? Their words. Because what they do, on the appearance of things, looks good and and looks good to others, or they wouldn't have made it as far as they make it. But we know them by their words. I'm not endorsing either candidate, by the way. So, to understand, I think, what, the, what he means by fruit, it's very helpful to look a few chapters ahead to Matthew chapter 12. And look what Jesus says. They're using much of the same imagery of the tree. He says, either... Make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Fruit of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, not in the salvific sense, but vindicated, and by your words you will be condemned. What is Jesus saying is what's inside of a man comes out. It is our words that show who we are. And that's not just Jesus saying that. Uh, In Acts, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that from among them would come uh, wolves. Again, the imagery is familiar speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Second Peter 2, 1-3, I'm going to breeze through these, talks about false prophets, false teachers, that teachers traffic in words, right? Uh, teaching heresies, denying the Lord. In verse 3, by covetousness they will exploit you with what? Deceptive words. First John 4 talks about false prophets again, who uh, can, don't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. and In verse 5, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Again, what what the test is, is words. Reminds us of the Old Testament test of a prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 13. A prophet arises among you, gives a sign or wonder. He does great things. And And the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let's go after other gods which you have not known, let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet. What is the test of a prophet? Not what he does. It's what he says, what he teaches. Deuteronomy 18, very similar. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks the name of other gods, 
that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing that the Lord has spoken. The prophet has spoken it, has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So you see that words can be the fruit that a person produces. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only interpretation of fruit in every passage in the Bible. I think it can probably refer to other things like, like works or uh, uh, converts. Uh, but certainly there's a strong case to build here that he's testing the false prophets by what they say, what they teach. And um, now when we say it that way, now we have an objective test because we can compare what a person says with the scripture itself. And so we have an objective standard and say, instead of just saying good works, how many, how much, what kind, what are good works, now we have the test of scripture. And we take a person's word and we compare it to the scripture. And then false prophets have a fiery finish, um, it says. Uh, and I think that he's, he speaks to them as of those who will perish like the false prophets in Second Peter chapter 2 or in Jude. Um, I don't believe this, although a fire is often used for discipline of believers, I don't think it's used that way in this passage. I think he's talking about eternal condemnation. So what's the conclusion from our first section here in verses 15 through 20? Don't use this passage to judge a person's salvation by good works or lack of good works. Don't use this passage to judge another person's salvation. When you do that, you become a fruit inspector. And you know what a fruit inspector really is, is a judge. You become a judge of others. The truth is, I believe, that only God and I know for sure that I'm saved. I think you could give a good educated guess that I am. I don't know how you could know absolutely for sure that I am. I know because I know when I know something. And God knows, of course. So be careful about becoming a fruit inspector and a judge of other people. Um, it's a serious warning and charge, I think, for us, because uh, when we question someone's works and the amount of someone's work someone has and cause them to doubt their salvation, uh, it can be a dis have a disastrous effect, freezing people from growth. Uh, they can't grow forward if they're always looking backwards. Um, get them grounded in the gospel of grace confidence of eternal security, the assurance of their salvation, and they have the confidence to move forward. Questioning people's works and the amounts that they need paralyzes them, and uh, especially those who are most sensitive to the Lord, and especially the most earnest of Christians who want to please the Lord, or those who are very introspective and have are always looking within to begin with. To cause them to look further within is really disastrous. Keep their eyes on the Lord. I like to ask a person this, if you were to die and stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And then I listen carefully to the answer. Sometimes you have to ask the question more than once because people aren't used to hearing that question. But what they have to do is give their rationale for thinking that they should get into heaven or have eternal life. And that allows them to tell you what they're trusting in. I found it to be a pretty good question uh, to 
And if someone gives a clear testimony, I believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior from sin, and he's promised me the gift of eternal life, and I, just, I receive that gift freely, not by anything that I've done, but by what he's done on the cross for me, as, and is now risen Savior. Uh, what I can do for all practical purposes is believe that person and assume that they're a Christian and go from there. Does that make sense? Let's look at the second part of the passage real quickly here. Now, everyone who says to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's make some observations about the passage. These perhaps are the same false prophets he just talked about or those who were deceived by them. The statement could be broadening the scope a little bit to include uh, others as well. But Jesus says, I never knew you, um, indicating that they are in the same category as the false prophets uh, as far as their salvation or not having it. And they have a a correct Christology. They say, Lord, Lord. They recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. They recognize the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, But it's true that the demons recognize the lordship of Christ. Um, The Roman Catholics recognize the lordship of Christ. Having correct theology does not save us. They are submitted to Christ as master because they're saying, Lord, Lord. They're calling him Lord. They're recognizing his lordship. But submitting to Christ, we could even say they're hyper-lordship because they repeat it and emphasize it. (laughs) Repetition in the Bible means emphasis, right? Hyper-lordship. So submission to Christ is not enough to save. As much as our Lordship Salvation friends want to preach it, you can preach submission to Christ all you want to, but that doesn't save anybody. It certainly doesn't save these people. Martin Luther was submitted to Jesus Christ when he entered the monastery, wasn't he? He didn't get saved until he understood the books of, book of Romans. John Wesley was submitted to Christ when he went to Georgia as a missionary, right? He didn't get saved until he went back to England and read Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. Submission to Christ saves no one. Now, if they had said, Savior, Savior, we would have a different issue, wouldn't we? But they're not calling Jesus Savior. They're calling him Lord. They recognize his lordship. And they have sensational good works, but good works are not enough to save. They're doing, they're casting out demons, they're doing miracles and and sensations, healings, they're they're, uh, slaying people in the spirit and lengthening their legs and uh, going to the emergency room and and having out-of-body experiences, going to heaven and seeing Jesus' white pony and things. Um, These are all in the movies and everything these days. That doesn't save anybody all these sensational experiences. We're not saved by correct theology, by good works, by sensational experiences. Um, They are also trusting in their good works for acceptance with God. That's their plea, after all. Uh, Haven't we cast out demons and done all these wonderful things? And so they are showing an attitude of self-righteousness, which, of course, the Pharisees displayed, which really was at in a sense, the heart of what Jesus was trying to speak against in the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The self-righteousness that they had. 
Not look what we did. Salvation comes by looking at what Christ did. And then unfortunately, he says, many will come to me. So there are many who are deceived, self-deceived about their salvation. And frankly, I share the concern with those that might disagree theologically. And I know this from experience. I'm sure you do, too. There are many people in America and around the world who think they are saved, and they are not. When I, when I go to Africa and, and I ask them, what is the gospel? And they give me 20 things, 10 things that you have to do to be saved. I'm not going to say they're not saved because I don't know. <laughs> I have my doubts. And when we teach them the gospel from the book of Romans and they leave with a big smile on their face at the end of the week, I kind of think some of them get saved. Not just Africa, India and other places. It's a big problem. And there are many who, who are self-deceived into thinking that they are saved. It's a widespread error because broad is that gate. Now, the truth is that these were never saved because Jesus said, I never knew you. John chapter 10, verse 14, you might want to compare where Jesus knows his sheep, his sheep know his voice. Um, so there's a familiarity there, but Jesus says, I never knew you. And there seems to be an ultimate expression of uh, not having anything to do with them. And he says that you're only practicing lawlessness. What does this mean? I think that he's talking about in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, they're trying to establish their own righteousness. And they have misinterpreted the law, the law, as the Pharisees have, as a way of righteousness instead of letting the law lead them to Jesus Christ as righteousness. And so, therefore, that neglect of the law would be called lawlessness. I don't think he's talking about wrongdoing here, but uh, that's a matter of interpretation. The tougher thing is what he says um, at the beginning of the passage, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so we have to ask the question, what is the will of the Father in heaven? Um, it's not correct theology. It's not having correct conduct. I hope we've established those points. But let's remind ourselves that the Sermon on the Mount is addressing the multitudes and the disciples, as he says in chapter 5, verse 1, and he's explaining the standards of God's standards of kingdom righteousness. He says in the Sermon on the Mount that righteousness in chapter 5, verse 20, must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the standard to get into God's kingdom. He says in chapter 6, 33, to seek his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And Jesus, of course, would be saying that he is God's righteousness. Um, and his words are words that lead to righteousness. He is the gate, the narrow way that he described in chapter 7, verse 13, 14. And he is the solid rock upon which we are to build our lives at the end of chapter 7. You can compare John chapter 10, verse 9 and 14, 6, where Jesus is the gate, Jesus is the way, uh, similar ideas. So through the Sermon on the Mount, he is building this idea of righteousness to point to himself. And now there are some passages in the Bible that shows God's righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. You hardly need to be reminded of them. I won't even read them. But Romans chapter 3, of course, is the very heart of the gospel explanation there in the book of Romans, maybe in the Bible, um, verses 30, 21 through 24, that righteousness comes, uh, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified freely by his grace. 
Galatians chapter 2.16, with an emphasis and repetition, says we're justified by faith in Christ. And even those who have believed in Christ were justified by faith in Christ. So the Bible supports that very clearly. I think we get a little help from John chapter 6 when uh, the people pursued Jesus across the Sea of Galilee uh, because he had given them free food. And he says, you know, look, if you're really going to labor for something, if you're really going to seek after something, don't seek for food that, uh, that perishes, but for food that endures to everlasting life. And what is he talking about? And he says, the Son of Man will give it to you. So it's a free gift. And they ask the question, what should we do that we do the works of God? Because they're used to rabbis giving them lists of things to do. Jesus said, there's only one thing to do, and that you believe in him whom he sent. So what God wants you to do is to believe. I think it's clearer, though, in chapter 6, verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, that's a clear statement. I realize it's coming from John to interpret Matthew. But here's a little chronological clue that helps us. When the Sermon on the Mount was written in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, we know that John the Baptist was in prison because Matthew chapter 4 tells us that. However, when Jesus taught that one must be born again through faith in Christ to enter the kingdom of heaven in John chapter 3, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist was still free. He was not yet in prison. So the disciples knew the message of how to enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is the assumption behind his explanation of this kingdom standard of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. So putting the chronology of the Bible together, I think that gives us a little clue as to what they already, these disciples already knew and understood. So let me summarize with just a couple things as far as application. First of all, of course, be careful about judging by appearances. Whether we're talking about politics or Christian professors, those who call themselves Christians, be careful about judging by appearances. We don't really know what's in a person's heart. God is the judge. Each person will stand before him. And their good works, because we don't even know exactly what a good work is or what, it, what the motives are behind it, can never be a final proof of salvation. And then make sure people are trusting in Christ's righteousness, not their own and not by what they do. And so it's a great mistake and error and very grievous to see so many authors and so many books and so many preachers telling us to examine ourselves, to question our salvation. Uh, I tell you, I've been doing so, many, so much reading to write the responses to them that it's just disheartening to think that so many Christians are reading these books and walking away. And I've heard the testimonies of these people walking away, wondering if they are saved or not. And yet their books are entitled things like, how to know you're going to heaven. How to know you're saved, or assurance of salvation. And then they take the book of 1 John and they give you a long list of things you have to do to prove the salvation. Salva assurance does not come by looking from within. What kind of faith you have, what, how much faith you have. We're not saved by faith, we're saved by Christ. Assurance come by, comes by keeping our eyes on him. In the end, 
What we're telling people is what, and asking them, what are you trusting in for salvation? That is the issue. And as we always say, there are only two religions. There is the one religion of what you do and how you're doing, and if you're going to do it until the end of your life and persevere in doing it, or what Jesus Christ has done once and for all. And what Jesus Christ did was a final payment. It is finished. Not a down payment. It was the final payment. And we are not on probation. And there is no trial period. The Bible says clearly, indisputably, that he who believes has everlasting life. So this passage is often misused. I hope this is a little bit helpful when you respond to somebody. He's not talking about believers. He's talking about false prophets. <clears throat> he's not talking about their good works. He's talking about their words, their doctrine. And with that understanding, we can have assurance and help people with their assurance. So let me have a word of prayer with you. But Lord, we thank, thank you for this word from Jesus Christ. We trust that we have reflected it helpfully, accurately. And we do grieve for those who live in the, the, this just floating in the, the sea of subjectivity and uh, drowning in introspection, <clears throat> mired in self-doubt. Uh, and we just want to be a clear voice for you. And we thank you for the clear promise that uh, those who believe in Jesus Christ have everlasting life will not pass into condemnation, have passed from death into life. We thank you for that promise and assurance. And then, and then Lord, we, we do want to do good works for you because your grace motivates us. So I thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.